if you didn't see it, I'll just point it out. I just tried to talk to you while I picked up the table like I normally do, but I'm using a handheld mic. So I was doing this, and then I realized I'm foolish, okay? So that's what just happened. Hey, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, turn to the book of James, closer to the back than the front by far, or you can look it up in the table of contents like I do a lot. Pull it up uh, on your device, whatever you want to do. We're going to be in James chapter 5, and we're just going to look at three verses today. Um, y'all, y'all hang with me as I grab the handheld mic. Uh, Nick said, just don't spit on it. Um, I'm not worried about that, but I can't promise no sweat. Um, it's probably going to get sweaty. All right. Um, and, and also just throw a hand up. Uh, I don't know why the difference with mics, but for some reason, a handheld, I feel the proclivity that I may accidentally bounce into like a rap chorus or something that could happen. Uh, country. So if you hear me say, I thank God for unanswered prayers, you just slow me down. Okay. Just throw a hand up. I didn't realize I went there. It's the handheld mic's fault. All right. We are uh, going to look at James chapter five. We were in James last week. We're going to jump back there again. But as you're turning there, I'll tell you this, that when I was in college, early in my college career, I still lived with my parents. I was a commuter to college because I still lived with my parents, and yet I was in college and kind of getting older and more in the adult stream of things. They were giving me kind of more freedom and stuff, but I still had rules hanging over me. At that point, also, it was the style for all the fellas, my homies included, to start wearing their hair really long and bushy, particularly in the back, right? I'd had longer hair in the front before, but I had always really wanted to have longer hair. I kind of also wanted to get both my ears pierced and my eyebrow. None of that ever happened because uh, my dad's probably right now, if he's watching this right now, he's, he's, his blood's boiling right now. He's angry that I even said that out loud, okay? Um, but, but I'd always wanted to grow my hair out, be like my guys, and, and eventually I did get to grow it out. One time I was sitting in a college class and found a golf tee in the back of my hair. I had stood back there the day before. We don't even want to talk about how nasty that is. But, but I was wanting my hair to be like everybody else's. I want to have this bushy hair so that it would flip up just right out of the back of a baseball cap, right? I don't know if you know that look, but that's what I was aiming for. But I was seeing everybody else. Their hair would seem like it was growing a lot faster than mine. I didn't understand that, and so I started researching Google searches and asking people, what can I do to make my hair grow faster? One thing that I heard about was carrot oil. Uh, it's the oil of carrots. It's exactly what it sounds like, okay? Uh, I'm assuming, I hope it is. Uh, that was my best understanding. If not, I don't know what I used. But carrot oil, I was told, you can take a little of this and you can rub it to, on your scalp and just put it on your hair a little bit and leave it there for about 30 minutes. It'll make your hair grow, right? And so for several weeks, I started just, you know, this is just me. I go all out when I'm going to do something. So I didn't go with the rub it into your scalp. I went with douse my whole head, right? And so I was walking around looking like a, somebody out of the Outsiders. If you've seen that film, one of the greasers, my hair was slick, and there was just stuff dripping like on my shirt sometimes. It's just weird. And after a few weeks of that, I was like, man, this is not working at all. The, the only thing I have, I don't have longer hair. I just have greasy hair, right? And so gave up on the carrot oil, and I was just frustrated. And so then I started this idea. I don't think anybody told me this. This was a me thought. I started to put on my hat when I was getting ready in the morning, and then I took a blow dryer and wet the back of my head and try to blow it up so that it would be sticking up in the back, right? And in reality, my hair wasn't long enough, right? So what it looked like was just like a messy little duckling, like, hey, his, his mama forgot to lick her palm and slap his head one good time. I just had these little, these little things floating in the back. A friend of mine caught me once doing that at somebody else's house, and he's like, hey, man, I tried that too. That ain't going to work, right? But, but I remember I wanted it so bad because I thought it was so cool to get to have long hair. And I'd always thought that, and I had known that it was not even an option for me. But now maybe it was a little bit of an option. Had to have it, but was so frustrated because I'm looking at my, my friends, and they got that perfect flip going, you know. And I just can't seem to get it. What worked for them is not working for me. Some of you, you've been there, maybe not with hair and carrot oil, but you've been there with a diet that everybody else is doing, and they're just knocking it out of the park, right? And they tell you how to do it and what you need to do, and 
you're several weeks into it, and you, you're going, hey, you lost 17 pounds in three weeks, and I, I'm over here. I've, I've gained two pounds in three months on this diet. How's this? What's happening? Right? That doesn't make sense. Did I, did I mix the water with the powder? Was I supposed to put the powder in after I put the ice cubes? Or, like, how is this supposed to work? What am I doing wrong? It's frustrating, isn't it, when you see somebody else succeed, and you're going, why is this thing that's working for everybody not working for me? You remember the boom that was essential oils? Anybody remember that? Right, some of y'all are like, what are you talking about the boom? I still live in essential oil land every day. Right? When essential oils came out, there was an essential oil for everything. It's like, if you're not getting it fixed by blowing some essential oils up in your house through a diffuser, if you're not getting it fixed by just taking a little dab of essential oil and putting it behind your ear, then you're using the wrong oil. Right? Because there is an oil that will fix that. It might be peppermint. It might be lemon chai. It might be blueberry biscuit morning sunrise. It might be whatever. There, there is some essential oil that will fix your problem. You're like, well, my problem is I don't have enough money in my checking account. And they're like, well, you need to get cucumber melon. It'll knock it straight in there, baby. Just get you some. Right? Right? But, but you remember the feeling where it's like, hey, everybody else is saying this lemon stuff's clearing their sinuses up, but I'm still snotting. Everybody else is saying their headaches are better. They don't have migraines anymore because they sniffed the peppermint, right? You're like, I'm sticking it up my nose and my migraines are getting worse. (laughs) What's the deal? It's frustrating when we see others succeed with a strategy, with a plan, with a resource, and we're sitting there going, why is it not working for me? The reality is we feel that way a lot of times. I bet if you're a follower of Jesus, you can identify at some point in your life you felt that way in your journey with Jesus. Why is it working for them? Why do they have joy? Why do they have peace? Why does their life seem calm and happy? Maybe because you don't know them well enough to know what's going on in their life. But why so in their life? And then particularly, specifically in the arena of prayer, why am I praying and trying to pray as the scriptures would lead me to, and yet it's not working? I hear everybody else. I hear the pastor up front. I hear the the small group leader, whoever. I, I hear people saying prayer has impact, and it's important, and it works, and I should pray. And yet, I I don't see it working for me. The hope, as we wrap up today, a a three-week little short series on prayer, is that prayer would stop being this frustrating thing for us that we, we can't seem to figure out and we feel like it's unattainable to us, though others can have it. The hope is that we could live out and actually experience this verse I've challenged you to commit to memory is 1 John 5, 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Is the confidence that I have in the direction of God, the confidence I have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That when we are people of prayer, we would be able to be confident about the fact that when I'm praying, God hears me. So our hope in this three weeks is not to leave you walking out, feeling beaten down by not praying enough, and, and hey, you stink, why don't you pray more? The hope is that you would walk away confident about God, understanding the connection to him in prayer better such that you would desire to pray, that you would be able to maybe more so enjoy prayer. Now, for that to happen, we've seen that God is Father and he's in heaven, so he's close and personable and intimate as a good father would be, and yet he's in heaven, so he's authoritative and over everything. So that's who you're praying to. That would motivate some prayers, I think. We saw last week, if you're seeking guidance, if you're a person who would acknowledge your need for wisdom, if you go, hey, there's a place at least one, if not one million places in my life where I need wisdom. I need the knowledge and how to correctly apply it. I need that in my life. When we're those people we heard last week, God gives that guidance, gives that wisdom without finding fault. (laughs) That he doesn't deal out uh, answers and interactions with our prayers based on 
our behavior, but based on his character. Man, that should inspire us to praise. Now, what I want us to do today as we wrap this up is not to go, hey, I baited you in with all this great stuff about prayer. Now, here's all the stuff that you can do that'll mess it up. Because <laughs> I think everything we've heard about God and everything we've heard about his heart for hearing our prayers and his desire to give us what we most need, all that supersedes and overrides big time. All of that is much bigger And there's not a long, long list of things that we do that messes up prayer, but there are a couple of things that we need to be aware of that might be hindering our prayer life. So I want you to see those today, be aware of those, and see how that might impact your prayer life. We're in the book of James. As we said last week, because we were in James chapter 1 last week, James is the brother of Jesus, Jesus' half-brother. He was not a believer in Jesus, not trusting that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet, after Jesus dies and resurrects and is alive and appears to James amongst other people, James go, oh no, he definitely is the Son of God. And so he goes from being a naysayer to being one of the biggest proponents and proclaimers of Jesus and of the gospel. He becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter, we said, to give practical advice. He's not just offering a bunch of doctrine, a bunch of theology to think about. That's important too, but he's saying, hey, I I really want to be very practical. I want it to be really clear how the truths that we're saying tie to your everyday life. He's writing a very practical letter to a people who are living in hardship, we saw to begin the letter. They're facing persecution. They're having hard times, and he's trying to give them step-by-step hope and help for how they can walk out their faith in the midst of that. Now, here's what's interesting. We saw that in chapter 1 last week, he starts this practical series of, of advice and giving wisdom, right? He starts it with prayer. And today we're looking at almost the very end of the letter. And you know what he ends it with? Prayer. <laughs> He goes, hey, if I'm going to tell you about the important things, if I'm going to give you the most important wisdom, then I'm going to say it to you at the very beginning, then I'm going to say it to you again at the very end. If you've ever been a parent dropping a kid off somewhere, you tell them as you're riding, you get in the car, and you go, hey, now listen, when you're over there, you know how to behave, right? And then when they get out of the car, you forget you didn't remind them. You roll the window down. Hey! Right? Remember how you know how to be? Yes, sir, no, ma'am. You do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Right? Tell them at the front. Tell them at the end because you're going, got to remember this. James feels that way about the urgency and the importance of us understanding prayer. He's talking about prayer. We're going to start in verse 15. He says this. I'm sorry, verse 16. He says this. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. That sounds scary, right? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, verses 16 through 18 are going to be our focus for today, but what I want to do is read the verses immediately preceding those verses to give you context. Because when you see at the beginning, verse 16, it says, therefore, it means, hey, what I've just said is the foundation for what I'm about to say. So I think it'll help us understand some of what he's saying. So let's read. These few verses, we're not going to focus on them because this is a very specific instance of prayer. Okay, It's a very specific type of need in prayer, and there's a lot we could say about it and learn from it, and we'll do it sometime. But, but just hear it for the sake of informing our understanding. Verse 13 says this. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
like I said, there's different understandings about this situation. But it is a specific situation. It's a person who's very ill, apparently. It's likely that they're calling for leaders of the church to come and pray with them because they're unable to make it to the gathering to pray with them themselves. They've reached a point of sickness that they probably can't get to leaders or people that they'd like to pray for them. So they're going, hey, it's bad and it's tough, and so I'm asking you, come pray for me. And it says that if these leaders have this experience of a prayer of faith, right, that the person can be healed. And it says, if you've committed any sins, your sins could be forgiven. Right, I'll just say this quickly, and then we'll press on into our verses. But, but here's the thing. Right? We oftentimes think, well, if life is hard or if hard things or bad things are happening to me or, or whatever the case may be, then it's because I've done something wrong and God is punishing me. We either think that or we tend to think sometimes, well, like, no, nah, I know it's not my fault at all. Nothing that I do in my life has anything to do. God should just bless me, bless me, bless me. And I think that James has given us the, the right healthy place that's in the middle in the tension. And he says this, I believe, listen, sometimes your sin is related to your suffering. It's not always related to your suffering. Jesus makes that clear, right, in one of the Gospels. He says, listen, they, they come to him and say, was it this guy that sinned or was it his parents that sinned? And that's why he's having this ailment. And he goes, no, no this guy hasn't sinned. Nobody sinned, right? This isn't about sin. This is just broken humanity, right? So it's not always true that we got to start looking for what have I done wrong in my life when we're facing hardship. And yet and still, he says, sometimes it may be true that your decisions your interaction with God or lack thereof, your attention that you're paying to God or lack thereof, your invite for God's wisdom and guidance in your life or lack thereof may have something to do with it. And he says, so listen, if you're sick, right, invite them, let them come and pray for you, and you may be healed. And if there's sin involved, if you'll confess that, that'll be forgiven. And I'll just point this out to you. The bigger deal here is not that the physical ailment be healed. The bigger deal is that the sin be forgiven. Listen, I'm, I'm all about believing in a God who will heal things and do things physically, tangibly in our world, in our bodies. I want to believe that more and more and more. And no matter how much I ever believe that, understand this, that God can cure the ailment that might be critical to your livelihood or your longevity of life. He can cure the thing that's threatening your flourishing as a human. He can take care of that. But if you don't trust the gospel of Jesus, you still get to experience eternity apart from him. Jesus' number one priority is not the stuff in your life, it's the stuff in your soul, right? So he's saying, listen, if you'll do this, call them, let them come pray, then God can, in fact, use prayers to shift big, huge things in your life, like a, a very bad sickness. And even bigger than that, he can shift your soul sickness, your hopelessness, if you trust in Christ. Therefore, back to where we started. Because that's true, because God will use prayer to change things, therefore, what does he tell us to do? Let's look back at 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He gave us two things that we're supposed to do. I bet out of the two, pray for one another or confess your sins to one another. If I said everybody in the right, right now, I'm going to count you off one, two, one, two, one, two, and the one group is going to do the praying and the other one's going to do the confessing for sin, people will start moving seats in here trying to make sure you got into praying for one another group, right? Nobody would be going like, can I get in the confession side? I want to be on the confession side. Please confess to others, me, call my name, right? Nobody would be saying that. That sounds really uncomfortable, and, and it, sometimes it is uncomfortable, but sometimes what's uncomfortable is really, really healthy, right? I want to make sure what we hear is, is not what he's not saying. He's not saying that every time you sin, you have to go and confess it to every single follower of Jesus because that's humanly impossible. Right? There are followers of Jesus on the other side of the earth right now who are asleep right now, 
right? If they knew about my frustration or my doubt in a moment when the sound system doesn't work, if I'm not going to be able to be right with God until I confess, I'd have to be back in my office right now. You'd be sitting out here with house music playing going, is this ever going to be over? I'd be calling people across the globe going, hey, listen, this is what I did. He's not saying you have to confess to everyone. He's not even saying that it has to be a public confession, right? That it has to be in front of everyone or even the whole church. He never says that. He says to one another with the expectation that we would do this one another in the same way that we do all the other one another's of Scripture, which is I look to do this regularly in my life whenever appropriate and to as many of them as possible. That means if I'm supposed to love one another, if I'm supposed to support one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, I'm just one guy. I can't bear everybody's burdens out there in the world. But everywhere that I can, and the people who are my people, the people that I'm connected in a family of faith with, I'm looking to say, how can I do this? And God says, in that same way, look for the moments when you need to confess your sin to one another. Right? Now, why would he talk about this in relation to prayer? And why in the world would I go sit across from somebody and confess my sin? Here's a couple of reasons, right? Actually, I'll give you four. One is this, because God said so. Do I understand exactly why all the time? Nope. Do I know exactly how it all fits together and works? Nope. But he said to do it, and he's trustworthy. There are times when, as a dad, there are times I want my kids to ask questions. I'm okay with questions as long as you're obeying and you're in the process of asking questions. When you're not being obedient and you're questioning, that's a whole different deal. But if I say get up and, and go do this, and you're getting up to go do it, and you go, well, could I do this later, or why am I doing this, or whatever, sure, we can talk through that many, many times. But there are times. When as a parent, I get asked the question, why? And I look, and hopefully not abruptly or in some kind of angry mood, but I just look at them and say, because dad says so, right? Right, because as dad, I may have reasons that are about things bigger than just you. I may be trying to help a a sibling or a friend or somebody learn a different lesson. I may be trying to protect them from what you're not doing this right now is going to make them feel. I may have wisdom and reasons that you have no idea about, and maybe I'll get to explain that to you, or maybe it's not best for you to know, but what you do need to know is that reason one, you should do what I say is because I'm your dad and because dad said so. You don't have to think that confessing sin to one another is comfortable. I don't think that. (laughs) But you do have to think it's valuable, and you do have to think it's something that we've got to assess and look at in our lives to go, is that even present in my life? We have to do that. Why? Because God is good, and he said so here. Secondly, God is clear that our care for people is intricately linked to our interaction with him. What does that mean? It means that the things that we do in our relationship with people here on this planet that we can look at and see, it's linked directly with our interaction with him. Here's an example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, he- verse 7. I almost said verse heaven. Did y'all hear that? Chapter 3, verse heaven. You're like, well, we ain't got to read the rest. There it is, heaven. All right, anyways, right? Verse Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Into that verse says, so that your prayers may be heard, or so that your prayers may be answered, or so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's, there's such a thing as if I'm not living with my wife in an understanding way, but I'm coming to God asking him to really be understanding with me. Something about that doesn't work, Right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you're at the altar and you're bringing a sacrifice of worship, this is not you're out buying groceries. This is like a moment of you and God worship. He says, if you're in the moment of worship and you realize that someone has an issue with you, that you've offended someone, he said, leave the sacrifice. Press pause on the moment of worship with God and go make it right with somebody else. Right? So how we interact with each other absolutely influences and colors our, our interactions with God. 
Reason three, right? Why else would we confess sin to other people? Because you can't do the Christian life alone. Nobody raise your hand. I'm not trying to bring shame to anyone, but I'm just saying that I would almost guarantee that sitting in this room today, there are people who have struggles, and one of the reasons that we struggle is because nobody else knows anything about it. Notice, I didn't name that struggle. I don't know what it is. But I'm just saying to you that something happens in our lives when we say something about what's true in us and we confess our sins and deal with our struggles and bring somebody else in the mix. God designed it to work that way. Right. He designed it not to work well without it. We need each other so we confess. Right. Lastly, number four, because it gives us peace with others. Right. Who would be the first person on the planet you would need to confess to? Probably the person that you've offended. Right. You need to go to them and go, hey, I know I did this wrong. Or, hey, you may not even know yet that I did this, but I did this. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. The person who tries to hide his wrongdoing will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Not may find it. We'll find it, Proverbs 28, 13. What I'm hoping that is landing in your soul is this. A lack of concern for peace with people is evidence of a lack of sincerity with God. That if you don't see something in your life and you've offended someone and you don't care, if you're excited about, why well, I told them, I showed them what's up, I told them off. If you feel really good about stamping your foot down in the middle of a situation with no concern for how it made others feel or perceive Jesus through your life, a lack of concern for peace with people is evidence of a lack of sincerity with God. Maybe you've parents had a kid and the kid comes and says they're sorry and confesses to what they've done and you're thinking, I wonder if this is really them being sorry or them not wanting to lose whatever it was I was about to buy them or do for them today, and you ask them, hey, did you say you're sorry to your sister or your brother? No? Well, how sorry are you if you're not saying sorry to them? You're coming and telling me that you're sorry for punching them in the face, right? You're telling me that you're sorry because you borrowed their iPad without asking, and then you dropped it in the backyard while you were on a swing and fell on it with your feet and cracked the screen in half. You're telling me you're sorry. It's not going to bother me to not watch any iPad. It's not my iPad. Why don't you have an inner impulse to go and speak to them and say that you're sorry? See, when we have a lack of concern for the way that our lives are impacting others, it evidences we're not as sincere in what we're saying to God if we're telling them we're sorry. Think about it this way. I hope you've never had a wreck, and I hope you never do, but just imagine you have a little fender bender right out here, right? Walmart feels like a good place to have a fender bender because usually when I'm going there, I'm stressed, and when I leave, I'm stressed, all right? So I may not be focused on my driving. Love Walmart. Thanks for the people. Stress me out, okay? You have a little fender bender, and it happens, and, and whether it's maybe your fault or definitely your fault or maybe their fault or definitely their fault, you get out of the car, you're looking at the car, the other person never gets out of the car. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Usually when you have an accident, you get out of the car, you talk about it. Right? The time they get out of the car is not until the moment that the police officer shows up, and they jump up and get out quickly and run over to him and start talking. Now, I heard somebody, so I know at least one person in the room is tracking with what's going on in my heart. What are you thinking and feeling is happening in that moment? Right? They're not concerned with your safety, if you're okay, if them hitting your car, you hitting their car, if it did anything to you that's not good. They're not upset about the fact that you're going to have weeks of stress with insurance companies and bumpers and all that. They don't care about any of that stuff, but they're running to the authority so that they can plead their case to him. Now, are they sincere in their concern for you? No. And if the officer sees it correctly, are they sincere in their approach to him? Not really. Right? They're selfish. 
They're selfishly motivated because they don't care about the other. Listen, we confess for many reasons, but one of them is because when we have a lack of concern for others, even we know, I believe, deep in our subconscious when we're talking to God, we know there's some sincerity missing. We're going, how can I talk to the God who gives me grace over and over and over again, but I have no concern for somebody that I didn't show grace to? One of the most powerful challenges or or, or strategic takeaways from today, maybe for some of us, just to go to somebody else and go, hey, I screwed that up and I'm sorry. (laughs) That may impact your prayer life more than you ever. I'm not promising some perfect, you go say that to somebody and then God goes, what you want? And he just starts rolling the list off. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying maybe some of the weight and some of the hindrance we feel about prayer would be removed if we weren't burdened down with a conscience that knows we're wrong before others and who hasn't cared. He says, confess your sins to one another. What did the last half of that verse say? He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now hear this part. Hear it with your heart. What do you really feel about this? What do you really believe about this? What jumps up in your mind is the first thing when you hear it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Hopefully you're not like me, but if you're like me, it's easy for my brain to go to this place when I hear a promise like that. Some people hear that promise and go, the prayer of a righteous person, it does a lot, it accomplishes a lot, it has great power. Woo! And they get fired up and they just go and pray. Let me tell you where my brain is is prone to go when I hear that kind of statement is, he's not talking about me because he said a righteous person. (laughs) That's an awesome promise for whoever is righteous. It's not a great promise for me. (laughs) If you're the righteous person, then go forward and pray. And by the way, put me on your list. Here's the things I would pray about if I was righteous, but prayer is ineffective for me because I'm not righteous. That's how many of us would would feel internally if we're honest with ourselves and it short circuits our attempts to pray. But I love this. Here's the example that he gives of this prayer. Hear this in verses 17 and 18. Here's the example of the righteous person who accomplishes much in prayer. It's beautiful on both sides of the coin. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Underline that in your heart, please. A nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here's what I hope you see is is two things that hold us in a healthy tension. One is this, is that if your prayers are going to have impact, if your prayers are going to matter, if your prayers are going to change things, right, it's not always going to happen, just like check a box and it happens, but if there's hope of it happening, if it's ever going to happen, you got to be a righteous person. And some of you right now are prone to, you're, you're, you've almost got the switch flipped all the way to off because you're like, well, there it goes, I'm done. I didn't come to hear a preacher yell at me about how i got to be righteous. Can I say this to you? That if I understand the gospel rightly, the message of the gospel, there's a holy, perfectly righteous God, and his standard for me to be considered righteous is that I live exactly like him, perfection, holiness, righteousness. And the, the hardest news that's ever happened for any human and every human is that we're all completely incapable. None of us in ourselves are righteous before God, but this holy God gave his son. He's the only one who could be sufficient, solely sufficient. We don't need anything else added into the mix. If we trust in him and hope in him, guess what we're counted as in God's eyes? Guess how he sees us even though we still sin and struggle with sin? He sees us as righteous. That seems unfair, doesn't it? 
That seems crazy. Like, how would God actually feel that way? It seems almost unbelievable, too good to be true. If you apply that to somebody else, you might even get a little angry because you might go, well, God, I know that you love people and I know you want to forgive people, but I see who they are. There's no way that you would feel that way about them, and yet every single one of us is part of the them that we would feel that way about. Righteousness for you is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to be looked at as holy as he is. Right? And... Also, it means that if I've really seen that, then I'm compelled. Elsewhere in James, he tells us faith without deeds is dead. If I really believe that Jesus has done this in my life, and I really value that he's done this in my life, I will strive with my whole life to live in the way that honors him as best I can. Some of you remember a few months ago, we talked about the holiness of God in us, that God is perfectly perfect. He's, He's radiant and bright in his holiness, and oh my goodness, wow, scary, and yet awesomely intimate to come to us. That's the holiness of God. And he looks at us and reckons with us as if that's our relationship with him because that's true of us in Jesus. And yet there's personal holiness in which I'm trying to arrange everything in my life to see and show his holiness more and more. You're righteous if you're a follower of Jesus because you're in Jesus. And the way that you flesh that out and live that is that you strive to see and show that holiness of God more and more through your life. But notice this, here's the flip side of the coin. It says, Elijah, this guy who was a prophet of God, he was called on by God to go in to speak to enemies of God and to knock down their pride and show them that you can't just take for granted all your wealth and all that's given to you. And you can't just strip it and steal it from those who have worked hard and been patient and have arrogance about it. You can't do that. So Elijah just comes and prays and goes, hey, by the way, it's not going to rain on the earth for three years. You say three and a half years. It's not going to rain. And it didn't. Right? Your best friend in the world, the one that you know always tells the truth, you trust with everything. If they came up to you today and they went, hey, by the way, not going to be any rain until about 2027. Starts tomorrow. Talk to God about it. He said it. It's not going to. You love them and you trust them, and in the back of your head you're going, I'm not sure I think you're right about that. Right? That's the nice version of what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking something more violent than that. But anyway, he goes, hey, I prayed because I wanted God to show you that it's not you, and no matter how capable you are, your capability is absolutely zero without the grace of God. He prayed, and for three years it didn't rain, and then when it was time for it to rain again, he went, hey, God, turn the water back on, and it started raining. Right? Here's the beautiful part about it. I hope you didn't miss it. This guy who's righteous, this guy whose prayer was so powerful, you see what else it said about him? It said he has a nature just like ours. Is a nature just like us. Here's what that means. It means that powerful prayer does not require sinlessness. For to have power coming out of your prayer life doesn't require you to be sinless. I'm not encouraging you to sin. I'm not saying go for it. Jesus never makes our sin something that he winks at and kind of grins. He never makes our sin acceptable. He makes you acceptable. I'm not encouraging you to sin, but I'm saying powerful prayer is not dependent upon sinlessness, but it is limited by the absence of real repentance. That's the difference in Elijah's life. He's counted righteous because of his faith in God. And yet his faith in God drives him to repent. But watch this. He had a nature just like ours. If you read this one story about Elijah, you'd be like, he's a superhero. I want to be just like him in my walk with Jesus. I want to walk out into Walmart and be like, hey, guess what? There is now going to be a checkout person at every single one of those aisles. And then it just happened and you didn't have to self-check out anymore. Just all of a sudden people blinked, open their eyes like, they're there. It's amazing, right? That'd be cool to be like that, right? 
But here's what it says. This guy who can pray that way and do that stuff, his nature was just like ours. Every moment in his life was not a scene where he prayed something or proclaimed something, and it happened radically. If you read his whole story, there are moments in his life where God uses him to do big, dramatic, powerful things against hundreds of prophets. And then there are scenes in his life when he runs from one lady queen. Goes, she's She is bad business. Can't handle her. Got to run away. He runs in fear. There are seasons in his life where he is absolutely cut down by fatigue. He has a nature like ours. Listen, sitting in the seat today, you, I'm talking to you, he has a nature like yours. He's not a spiritual superhero. He, he doesn't have more Jesus in him than you did. He didn't even know about Jesus. Right? He prayed and it happened not because he was sinless. He had a nature like ours. He prayed and it happened because powerful prayer belongs to those who are righteous in Christ and who are pursuing to flesh that out practically. If you don't hear anything else today, I hope you've heard a very balanced true approach to what God is trying to get us to see in Scripture, and it's this, that your life and your decisions, all that stuff absolutely does matter. It does impact your prayer life, and yet it's not the one and only thing that impacts it. What impacts it most is that you trust in Christ, and he's your righteousness, and therefore you are the righteous that he's talking about. Go and pursue that life and pursue him in prayer and see what God might do. Here's the big crazily simple point that I pray you walk away with today is this. Your prayer can change things big time. You're going, not mine. One reason that our prayers aren't changing things big time is because we don't believe that our prayers will change things big time, and so we don't pray very much. Ouch, I'm starting with me. I'm at the front of the line. Your prayers can change things. Listen, when I felt that the Lord had impressed upon my heart to move to a place two and a half hours from anywhere I'd ever lived and start a new church, in a place, by the way, where there was lots of churches, and it was like, no, I sense that there's, there's a need for something different there to reach people who aren't being reached and go, listen, let me tell you, that sounds really brave and faithful and whatever. My, my mom and my sister will tell you about a day that I was on their couch, on my knees, weeping my eyes out, saying, God, please don't let me be doing the wrong thing. God, I don't know if you're ever going to use this. I don't know what to do. I'm just crying out in just desperate prayer because I'm so not sure. And yet I continue to ask God, God, do things so big that we struggle to keep up with. I don't necessarily pray that prayer anymore because he answered it. <laughs> and we saw people regularly, adults regularly, giving their life to Jesus. We saw crazy good things happen. We experienced crazy hard things. But God granted our request as people united their hearts together in prayer, not because we were sinless, but because we trusted in Jesus as our righteousness. And we wanted to live that out. For probably almost four years, every single month was a hard month for my wife and I as we died to have children just like our friends. And eventually we gave up and started the paperwork for adoption. And we continued to pray, God, just bless us with a child. And it was not but a couple days after that we found out we are going to have my now 13-year-old daughter who's up in New York City. Pray her home, please. My now 13-year-old daughter, that, that if you're a guy in the room and you ever look at her, I'll come at you with a God-ordained elbow. Right? I've told her she's perfectly fine to date and even kiss a guy when she's 35. Okay, so we got a while. This girl that I love with all my heart, I remember holding her head in my hand when she was born, and her little fuzzy hair was in my hand. We love hair on babies in my family because none of ours had them. She had this little peach fuzz on her head, blonde hair, and I was like, she's so beautiful. I was holding literally in my hands God's answers to my prayers. You're going, it doesn't work that way for everybody. Right, 
guess what? I've prayed big for big things lots of times, and it hasn't come about yet, at least not in a way I've seen. But let me tell you, the prayer that never works is the one that we never pray. The prayer that never works is the one that we never have faith and trust to ask God for. God does not answer your prayers primarily dependent upon your record of behavior. He answers your prayers based on his faith, for your faith in him and what he's done in Christ. Would we be a people who would be motivated to pray? Not that we would walk around critiquing ourselves over introspective and going, well, there's no way God would because I did this 74 years ago and I'm still worried about it. But just people who go, God loves people like me. He calls me saint, even though I still sin. God cares. He answers prayer. He uses it mightily. Listen, Dublin Bible Church, what are we asking God to do mightily? I, I, I promise you, as sincere as I can be, at least in this exact moment, I could not in this moment care less about what number of people come through those doors, about how many services we have, about how many people we get to baptize. We're not going to shout that from the rooftops and go, hey, look at us. I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm just asking you, do we want to have a massive impact for the glory of God? Whatever it looks like. Are we asking him? Forget about collectively, just personally. Do you want God to impact people and change the world because of your life? Are you asking him? Will we be motivated by the holiness of God to live in line with that and then to ask him with a big faith to do big things? That's the question. Worship team's going to come. And as they play, today may be a really hard response for some of us because maybe some of us in the room need to go grab a friend and we need to go, hey, I need to talk to you, and maybe some of that confession needs to come. It may need to be confession, hey, I've done this and I know it's hurt you. I've done this and you don't know about it. Or it may need to be, hey, this has nothing to do with you necessarily, but here's what's happening in my life and I'm struggling. Listen, the word of God doesn't tell us things to do so that we can nod and think it's a good idea. It tells us things to do so we can do them. You may not do it in this room today. That doesn't make you a sinner if you don't. But don't think that we would get together and talk about God a whole lot and then expect him to do nothing in our midst. But God leads you today to have that moment with somebody. Maybe today it's just coming clean between you and God as you sit there and we sing, and then maybe you can stand and sing like you've never sung before because you've got a clean conscience and a free soul. Whatever it is for you today, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you with all my heart as a friend, as your pastor, respond to God in whatever way is active and genuine and honoring of him and others. Let's pray. God, hard, hard word for me, God word to say to others uncomfortable God I thank you that your grace is just that that it's grace it's not wages that we've earned from you God I thank you for your honesty to tell us that we shouldn't have mouths that proclaim and appeal for your glory and your power and your authority in your hand and yet have lives that look like we don't know those realities God, I pray for anyone sitting in this place right now who's, man, feeling you lead them to get honest with you and maybe others about sin, but they're hanging on because it'd just be too uncomfortable, too embarrassing. God, I pray that you would help them to trust you. Help them to trust you. God, let them taste the joy just on the other side of repentance. And let it
let it be rich. God, I pray for all of us that you would give us faith. Faith to pray. Faith to ask for real big things in our souls and through our lives. God, lead us now. In this moment, lead us as we leave. How can we live to worship? We ask for your guidance in this, in the name of Jesus.